The Lever. Subscriber-supported journalism that holds power accountable. As a Lever Premium subscriber, you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content from this episode and others in your feed. To become a subscriber, go to levernews.com. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Lever Time, the flagship podcast from The Lever, an independent investigative news outlet. I'm your host, David Sirota. On today's show, we have a very busy show. We're going to be talking about the recent implosion of not one, but two Republican U.S. Senate candidates here in the lead up to the midterm elections. Also, the Republican Governors Association and their new grotesque Facebook ads, which are attempting to raise money off of Republican governors' cruel treatment of migrants. We're also going to be breaking down the new slate of Supreme Court cases coming down the pike for this current session, uh, trying to potentially destroy what's left of America and American democracy. And for our big interview today, I'm going to be talking with the author Douglas Rushkoff about his fascinating and kind of terrifying new book called Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires, because the ultra wealthy are planning for the apocalypse. And it turns out that the rest of us are not really invited. This week, our paid subscribers will also get a bonus segment, the best moments from our live show with Steven Donziger, the acclaimed environmental lawyer who sued Chevron and won a landmark settlement, but then paid the ultimate price when Chevron used its high-paid legal team to put Steven on house arrest and in jail, uh, ultimately. If you want to access Levertime Premium, head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber. That gives you access to all of our premium content, and you'll be directly supporting the investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever. Speaking of which, if you like this podcast and you like our reporting, tell your friends and family about The Lever. The only way that independent media grows is by word of mouth, and we need all the help we can get to combat the inane bullshit that is corporate media. As always, I'm joined on the show by producer Frank. What's up, Frank? Not much, David. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling refreshed. I'm feeling reset uh, after the Lever's big uh, work retreat that we had this past weekend out in Santa Fe. It was amazing. I'm so glad we did it. I was. Uh, we all work remotely, uh, and and once a year, we should do it actually more than once a year. But once a year, we all get together. I, I agree, for, yeah, yeah. We all get together for a weekend, and this this year we got together uh, in New Mexico, and it was all that. You you'd think New Mexico uh, should be. It's, it's an amazing place. Um, at one point, we, uh, uh, we, our, our trip got delayed because there was a shootout and a carjacking. That was not that cool. Um, there was another, not a, by the way, not a shootout or carjacking that we were involved it in. Was, it wasn't like the Breaking Bad or like Better Call Saul set. This was like a real, a real shooting that delayed our travel. Kind of felt like a Breaking Bad episode or a better, a better Call Saul, or at least Better Call Saul or Breaking Bad adjacent. Like mm-hmm. it was very on brand for every time. I, every time I told people were a friend we were going to New Mexico, they were like, oh, Breaking Bad. Right. So I'm like, now we come back with like a sort of carjacking shootout story uh, to, I guess, add authenticity to it. Uh, it was a great I had a great time. And I, I frankly, 
I love New Mexico and I'm thrilled to live in Denver, which is somewhat accessible to New Mexico. I mean, it's a long car ride, but it was, it was great. And it was great to see you in person. We, we rarely ever see each other in person. It was great. I got to meet like half of our team in person for the first time. And it, it really, it really made me feel like I was a part of a team, which is something that I think we lack because we're all just looking at screens, uh, you know, five days a week. That's right. That's right. Now, for the first half of today's show, speaking of the work that you do, Frank, on uh, at The Lever, uh, you are the uh, director of All Things Podcasts. The first half of today's show, we've got a very special announcement. Next week, The Lever will be launching our second podcast, officially making us The Lever Podcast Network. The show is called The Audit. And with us today in this first part of the show of Lever Time, with us today are, are the audit's hosts, Oscar-nominated screenwriter Josh Olson and stand-up comedian and WGA-nominated TV writer Dave Anthony, who also had a podcast has a podcast called The Dollop. Hey, Josh. Hey, Dave. Hey, David. Hello. So we're going to get to the audit in a little bit, and we'll get to why it's called the audit in a little bit. But first, let's start with a little election season coverage. Uh, you guys have followed that. You've covered that in your uh, previous podcast uh, about the West Wing, by the way, one of my favorite podcasts. Um, specifically, I want to talk today about how the Republican Party has become an imploding supernova of <laughs> lies, corruption, and cruelty. I mean, just a kind of cartoonish uh, implosion, explosion. I mean, it really is taking it to, to like another level here. I mean, I think everybody, a lot of people listening know that the Republican Party is full of supervillains, but they're really, really leaning into this. So let's start with the Georgia Senate race. Uh, earlier this week, it was revealed that uh, anti-choice, let's put that in quotes, Republican nominee for Senate Herschel Walker uh, reportedly paid for his girlfriend's abortion in 2009. Uh, the former NFL star running against uh, Raphael Warnock, the incumbent Democrat, uh, has claimed to be vehemently anti-abortion and has previously said that he wants to completely ban abortion with no exception. That's a quote, no exception for rape incest, or the life of the mother. This was all but confirmed by one of Walker's own children, Christian Walker, who went on Twitter the night that the story broke and wrote, quote, every family member of Herschel Walker asked him not to run for office because we all knew of some of his past, every single one. He decided to give us the middle finger and air out all of his dirty laundry in public while simultaneously lying about it. I'm done. I mean, that that was a direct quote. So I guess the first question on this, as we move through the uh, imploding uh, supernova that is the Republican Party, um, were you guys surprised to find out that Herschel Walker is apparently a pathological liar with no moral scruples at all? No. Shocked. <laughs> yeah, not, not even slightly. I mean, stunned, stunned. <laughs> so, here's a question that I always come to with these stories: Donald Trump, like, accused of sexual harassment, uh, cares, all, right? all sorts of horribleness. Do you think this will actually hurt Herschel Walker's campaign? Will Republican voters in Georgia care about this? Will anybody care about this? It, it will help him. Probably not. It'll help him. I'm not kidding. You think Look, it, at, at some point, we have to acknowledge that it almost seems seems as if they're running on what will make the liberals angriest, and that is their yeah. entire 
campaign and and that's who they're picking the people they're picking are are largely monsters and everybody knew herschel walker's past it's not like his abusive past is is some magical thing that just popped up he has a terrible past so why else would you pick this guy unless you knew he would infuriate liberals right but i but this isn't a story that infuriates liberals this in theory if the nope. MAGA hard right was serious about what it says it's ideologically yeah, serious about, well, I think that's well, the, that, I think that's the point. They're they're serious about enraging us, enraging every. So it's like if if it will piss off if it'll if it'll piss off Democrats, um, it's it's good. I mean the fact yeah. that that yeah, I don't see a lot again. Social media is not the world, but you don't see a lot of Republicans going, "Oh my God, I can't believe he's he's this lying sack of shit." But you are seeing all these Democrats going, "Oh my God," and. You know, people complaining that the mainstream media isn't hitting this hard and like nobody, they, they, they don't care. So you're what you're you're making like a meta argument here that and if you look at Walker's response, Walker's response was this is not only not true, I'm going to sue the media yeah. organization that brought this yes. up. That what you're arguing is, is that the Republican, the MAGA ethos is to uh, is to say we're the victim even if I'm trampling my alleged uh, ideological uh, crusade, uh, I'm going to turn that into uh, a positive for myself by saying, look at them ganging up on me, the victim, that it's all about being the victim. It's always about being the victim. I've always said like every time, every time a Democrat calls a Republican out for hypocrisy, a devil gets his horns. They don't care. They laugh. It just, it's funny to them. And and, uh, you know, even back in the days when we thought this stuff mattered, um, it was pretty clear that calling these people out of their hypocrisy was pointless. I mean, it's extreme. He, it's literally the only policy he's taken a position on. Right, right. And you sit there and you you have to resist the urge to do this deep dive. You're like, OK, so wait, you, you really believe it's murder. And and now there was another candidate recently who's like, yeah, I had an abortion. Then I came around to it. And now I think it's murder. And you're like, so you believe that you're a murderer and now you would like to be in the senate <laughs> i mean i mean apparently and, and by the way just as we move on from this story let's just remember how much of a complete shit show georgia has become i mean this yeah. is actually yeah. kind of incredible i mean this comes two years after the 2020 election cycle which saw both incumbent republican senators from georgia kelly loffler and david purdue Credibly accused of insider trading in the lead up to the covid pandemic, not to mention Georgia's wildly crooked Governor Brian Kemp, who signed the election theft bill in 2021. I mean, it feels like Georgia has really become America's uh, factory for supervillains. I mean, there was the ad David Perdue. We were laughing about this over the weekend. David Perdue, right. the Republican senator, aired an ad where the tagline reassured voters that he was, quote, totally exonerated. I mean, <laughs> running for well, office. He wasn't because the SEC can't do that. <laughs> right, of course. But it's like you're running for office being like, like the cops said I'm not guilty. <laughs> right. Like the white collar cops. I mean, yeah. this is what Georgia has become. Now, of course, only to be to be um, minimized by what's going on in Pennsylvania. Uh, my uh, uh, where I grew up, Josh, where you grew up, uh, it was revealed on Monday that Dr. Mehmet Oz, the daytime TV doctor from New Jersey, who's currently running for a seat in, uh, in the Senate from Pennsylvania, he apparently murdered over 300 dogs throughout the course of his scientific research. Uh, this includes an entire, reportedly an entire litter of puppies. I'm not laughing. I'm a, I'm a dog owner. I love dogs. 
but like how much more villainous can you become? Like it's like they used to make a joke like um oh we're going to find out that this political candidate, you know, was mean to puppies. Like apparently in real life Dr. Oz was like murdering actual puppies Torturing uh, in and this murdering. Torturing. Yeah, it was it was terrible. No, I am I am literally working to make sure my wife I'm working to make sure my wife never hears a story because she will be on a plane to Pennsylvania. <laughs> right. Okay, so, so here's an interesting here's an interesting question about this. The Mitt Romney put the dog on the in the crate on top of the car thing. Uh-huh. I actually think that did real damage to Mitt Romney's sure, political prospects because while people don't People seem to voters seem to care less about, you know, Mitt Romney um, buying up companies and laying off thousands of people as a private equity executive. I think people care a lot about puppies and dogs. There's an amazing scene in Starship Troopers. I don't if you remember it after they bombed Brazil uh, and it's just it's just completely nuked and the camera just goes through all the devastation and there's dead bodies everywhere and blood and guts and decapitated heads. And you see it in the theater and the audience sits there in stunned silence. And then they cut to a dead dog and the entire audience goes, Oh, I mean, that's us. <laughs> yes. Right. You know, so, I, so, that's the, us. so I actually think this, this deals like a real blow to Dr. Oz's campaign. Don't you think? Yeah, I think this one will, but he's already, and I mean, the, the MAGA mind is not a mind we've ever encountered before. And it's, it is a, it is a cruel, vicious, absolutely do not care about life and death. They certainly don't care about the lives and deaths of people at all. I mean, as we've seen through, you know, COVID, they, they don't care. So I don't know how much it hurts them with that core group. But I think it does hurt them with some people that were like on the fence. I, I think killing puppies. <laughs> I think we found it. Like that's the thing. If they <laughs> killed puppies, I think that's the one thing that could hurt them. No, I mean I saw I saw Fetterman John Fetterman, the Democratic nominee, his Twitter feed. He was like I think his tweet was something like, Doctor Oz literally killed puppies and didn't even say anything else. Like that's it. Like it's the only yeah. thing to yes. say because because yeah. I feel like that taps into something that's like way deeper than like for instance, the story we reported, which was, you know, Dr. Oz wants to move lots of, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of seniors into private health insurance where they'll, where they'll be, you know, bankrupted uh, and die lonely deaths. I feel like that story doesn't it doesn't uh, get as much traction than Dr. Oz literally tortured and murdered puppies yeah, because no. of the culture that we live in. Now, one last part uh, I want to get a story I want to get to about the, the election. We reported the lever reported on uh, something truly horrendous with the Republican. Republican uh, supernova. Uh, they, the Republican Party is now doing a Facebook ad campaign paid for by the Republican Governors Association asking people to uh, tell them which cities Republican governors should deport immigrants to. Uh, the poll, this so-called poll, lists San Francisco, Seattle, Minneapolis, and Philadelphia as potential destinations. And it's actually a fundraising pitch. They ask people to respond to the poll and then ask them to give money. Um, do you think these tactics will resonate with voters? Um, do you think? Yeah, with uh, their base. Yeah. You, so you think yeah, it'll be yeah. it'll fire oh, up? Yeah. I mean, the, the fact that that you know Martha's Vineyard went, oh my God, let's let's take these people in and help them out. It doesn't matter. It was like the story was, you know, everybody expected they go, oh my God, get these filthy migrants out of my home, and they didn't. 
But that's still the story. That's the story that they're going to report. That's the story they all believe. And and it goes back to your theory about what 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 the MAGA movement is really about, which is just yeah. about pissing off pissing off liberals. By the way, one one thing to put an icing on the cake of that story. Would it surprise you guys to find out that the Republican Governors Association uh, is being bankrolled by name brand corporations like ExxonMobil, Chevron, CVS, Coca-Cola, and Facebook? In other words, those brand names that everybody knows are effectively um, uh, their money has gone to fund the group that is doing these ads. I, I mean, mean, certainly, certainly Exxon and uh, oil companies. I mean, I think some people will be surprised that Coca-Cola is in there, but you shouldn't be because – I mean, these are fascistic sort of ideas that we're talking about when you get into flying immigrants around to different places and dumping them in places. And a company's always side with fascism. They just do. It's it's part of the model. The one thing that, that keeps killing me, because I think, first of all, with both of these races, although Oz may be toast, I don't know. But, you know, you can't expect that last minute influx of cash, right? Like when yeah. Ted Cruz is running against Beto and I think like when Chantel Brown uh, you know, we're going to get Nina Turner. You, you, you do it a couple of days before with this, you know, so we're, that could still happen. And the thing that makes me crazy is I keep thinking like, yeah. And you know, Biden could go down there and he could promise to do something, you know, significant and impactful right now, as soon as the election is over, if you support the Democrats, but he kind of, you know, kicked the legs out of that chair, uh, with, with student debt. And, yeah. and it's, it's just infuriating because all this stuff is so insane people forget that there is a way to combat it and and it's not with you know similar rhetoric it's like fucking do something for people you know how about legalized pot and and i mean it, david you know better than me like yeah. how many how many signatures would it take for joe for joe biden to essentially legalize or you know decriminalize pot and put everybody who's in prison for pot related charges out in the street it would not be that it would not be that hard and your point Wildly about popular with everybody right. You know, just there you go. Election's over. We're fine. We're done. Right. Your your point about how to combat this is not necessarily only to point out the hypocrisy and the outrage of it, but to yeah. actually look like you're doing something to counter it. Uh, yeah. I think that's a really, really important point. Okay. One other set of stories I want to get to before we talk about the audit, although it is actually related to the audit, uh, and we'll get to that in, in a sec. Uh, a related topic to the Republican uh, imploding supernova uh, is, of course, the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court now stacked with uh, Republican monsters. Uh, it just began a new session this past Monday. Several hot button issues that the court's six to three conservative majority could once again have a seriously devastating impact on. Let me just run down a, a few of these cases. You've got a case that will be testing the legal limits of race-based gerrymandering. Uh, Alabama Republicans asking the court to block a lower court ruling, which found that Alabama's new voting districts probably infringe on the landmark Voting Rights Act. Uh, you've got uh, a pair of cases uh, attempting to get rid of or gut affirmative action. Uh, you've got a case called Sackett versus EPA that will determine whether the Environmental Protection Agency agency can regulate certain uh, and protect certain wetlands connected to federal waters. A win there could lead to increased land development, loosen restrictions on corporate polluters, uh, and uh, allow development to infringe on wetlands that actually help combat the climate crisis. Also, uh, of course, clean water. Uh, then there's more, more v. Harper. This one uh, is being portrayed as the apocalyptic one for
for Democracy, Republican lawmakers in North Carolina appealing a ruling by their court there found that the voting map they drew amounted to illegal gerrymandering. A win in this case would hand state legislatures almost total control over how federal elections are conducted in their states, which sounds kind of wonky. But would basically let Republican legislatures uh, decide, or at least the theory is they could just decide what the election results uh, are. Um, all of the, I mean, this is like a horror show here. Uh, and I guess the thing, the question I would ask you is, you know, we tend to blame Donald Trump. I think people blame Donald Trump, uh, uh, give him an outsized amount of credit for the court's six to three conservative majority with those nominations and confirmations of Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, uh, Amy Coney Barrett. But we also need to remember the stolen election of 2000, mm -hmm. which handed George W. Bush the presidency, which mm -hmm. resulted in the confirmations of John Roberts and Sam Alito, arguably the two leaders of this shit show. Do you think that we've all forgotten how this all started? I, I would actually take it even further back than that. Yep. And when Joe Biden oversaw the Clarence Thomas correct. hearings and and really pushed hard to get Clarence Thomas on the court. Uh, so it goes way, way back. Well, he didn't. In fairness, he didn't. To, to be fair to him, he didn't push to have Clarence Thomas on the he court. Helped pave the way. He made it easy for. He's him. on mic saying, "I will get you on the court to Clarence Thomas." Is he? We have record of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, "He said I will get you on the court, Clarence Thomas." When there was a little side. He voted. I mean, he voted against that. I, th I thought. Them. I thought the criticism was that he kind of botched the hearing. He did not botch the hearing. I I did a whole dollop episode. You on think it. the you think the fix was in. The fix is 100% in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's really interesting. Well, I mean, here's – you're right. It goes all the way back. It goes way back. And I think there's not an awareness of 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 the entire trajectory. That's what makes me crazy is can I just – is there's, there's not an awareness and that, that lack of awareness is encouraged by the people who should be uh, going the other direction. I remember Nancy Pelosi being asked, you know, like, did, hey, did you see this coming that they were going to, like, you know, take out uh, Roe? And she goes, no, not at all. I have no idea how it happened. And you're like, that. I've been reading about the Federalist Society since I was a child. We have yes. known there is this organization out there. Right. It, it, it's not some weird conspiracy theory. They exist. <laughs> you know, Donald Trump acknowledged that they were picking his picks for him. And and here's the Speaker of the House claiming to have no idea how this happened, which makes her either incompetent or a liar. And and you know it's why are they not calling this stuff out at least? Make well, people well, aware let's, of let's, it. Let's broaden it out even further. Here you have the Democrats rhetorically acknowledging that the court is completely out of control. Mm -hmm. You've got a situation where in polls the public now has lost confidence in the court. I think the court's sure. approval ratings, trust in the court, is now at a historic low, and you still have the Democrats not in any serious way, pushing for an expansion of the court. I mean, you guys just did a, a, a long podcast series on the West Wing. And, and I think the central, the central idea of the, of the critique in that podcast is that the West Wing, prior, the show, the TV show, prioritized this idea of etiquette and, and norms over everything else. And it would fit with a kind of West Wing attitude to never push for any kind of structural reform at the court right. because it would be too impolite. The system is never at fault. Right. So do you think the West Wing brain is why the Democrats 
aren't actually still taking on the court? Yeah, I think I think so. But I also think it's what you touched upon, which is the root of of that is American exceptionalism. They think that this thing that has been built is perfect and wonderful, but it's actually a very flawed system, as we saw when Chile only went 250 years with their uh, republic. And also the Democrats, you bring up the George Bush election. The real reason that they backed off and didn't fight for that is because they're scared of Republicans and they're scared of the reaction. And that, and that just seems to underlie every single thing they do. It's to watch what the Republicans have done with the Supreme Court, essentially steal an election, put the, the two people you just named on there, then just say we're not going to seat your pick to Obama and the, the Democrats don't do anything. Then Ginsburg doesn't retire in time. I mean, during the 2016 election, McCain said we will not seat any court nominations of Hillary Clinton. That's who you're fighting. Act like yeah. it. Yeah. They're yeah. not playing democracy. Act like it. Well, we're talking about the past and how we got to this point. And I think your point about how the Democrats uh, don't do what they need to do and our mention of how this started, this especially with the court, started way back, reminds me of this guy. There's an old saying in Tennessee. I know it's in Texas, probably in Tennessee, that says, fool me once. Shame on Shame on you. It fooled me. We can't get fooled again. <laughs> I didn't yes. know that. George, I remember seeing that quote. I didn't know that George Bush was apparently a big fan of the who, because, of course, the second part of that <laughs> seems to be. Yes. Those the are the who actual song. lyrics of the song, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I bring him up because I do think George Bush is at the heart of so much of what yeah. we're living through, even though he's yeah. been uh, resuscitated as some sort, some sort of a benevolent figure. And that brings us to the Lever's new podcast, The Audit, George, that George Bush clip. I want you to explain, one of you guys, to explain what The Audit is, why it's called The Audit, and what the first set of episodes has to do with good old W. Uh, yeah, so The Audit is, uh, we're going to be doing a series of, I like to think of this mini-series. We're going to start with five episodes Um in which we sit in essentially on classes, uh, audiobooks, documentaries, what have you, by uh, a great a great line from the great Bill Hicks, the uh, the most fevered egos of our time, um, and basically the last thing in the world. Um, and you'll listen to the show, and you'll get a clearer sense. The last thing in the world any teacher would have wanted is uh, Dave Anthony and Josh Olson sitting in the back of their class razzing them. And that's basically what we're going to do. We're starting with, I don't know if people know this, there is a master class that George W. Bush recently did on leadership, where you can take a series of <laughs> courses in him on how to be a leader, how to run uh, to be a CEO, an effective CEO, how to deal with crises, all that kind of thing. So we're going through them. And each arc, we're going to have what we like to call our study buddy. Uh, for the first one, we're joined by the comedian Kate Willett, who's a brilliant, very funny woman. And we are going to uh, dissect these things, essentially sit through them so you don't have to and bring you the good bits, by which I mean the bad bits. So you're going to audit George. You're going to start we're by audit auditing George Bush's, George Bush's master class. Okay. Just to give folks a little bit of a taste yeah. of the, uh, uh, the alleged genius, uh, that people who are, 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 are in this master class, what they're going to get from George Bush. Let's hear a, uh, a clip of George Bush. Uh, this is recently, uh, talking about leadership and crisis management through the framework 
of 9-11. It's important to develop a framework that allows you to make decisions based on a set of values and principles. With foreign policy, for example, after 9-11, my administration laid out a set of principles to deal with threats before they fully materialized. I mean, I mean, you, you, I, like that, that, I can't even, I don't even know what to say. Like that's, that's not parody, right? That he's not, he's, that's not no. satire. No, no. He did not rearrange his words to make them mean something else. Yeah, it's important to uh, have a bunch of rules in place before something happens. And we came up with those rules after 9-11 happened. Like so. we started a war based on lies that killed a million yeah. people and um, cost two trillion dollars. Nice I mean, the important thing about what he's doing and other people have used these and um, uh, it's disturbing is they're using these master classes. And by the way, not to knock the whole thing. There's some wonderful classes you can take. But these political figures seem to be using them to essentially whitewash their history. Because it's, yeah. it's astonishing. I mean, he just lies his way through his eight years. and But every now and then he sort of yeah. stumbles and says something like that. And it's we're here to catch. It's it. not just whitewashing. It's it's I don't even know what to, it's like. Newspeak. It's propaganda. Yeah, no, it, it's it's 100 percent. And like the whole thing is just from from beginning to end. And even within a, a two minute chunk, he will contradict himself because each moment he's lying to make himself seem better and then i'll go to the next thing and you'll be like well you're now you're saying the opposite because each moment he's just trying to redo his image it's about his legacy that's all this is it is propaganda legacy material but like things went well in foreign policy after 9 11 that's completely fucking insane like that's that's yeah. like totally insane like but that's also that's but they for years would run on george w bush kept us safe from terrorism which I maintain one of the reasons Donald Trump was president is that he's the first first time I ever saw somebody on national TV call that shit out. It was like, yeah, Jeb Bush said my brother kept us safe from terrorism. And Trump said the thing that we all wanted to say. Yeah, except for 9-11, schmuck. So here's my question about the audit. What are you two hoping the audience gets out of you being gluttons for punishment to boil <laughs> down what monsters like George Bush are saying? Like, what what do you want the audience to get out of it? Other than it being fun, like la there's like a laughing at kind of like like sort of schadenfreude part of this. But wh let's, what should the audience? What do you down. hope? That's right. Of course. <laughs> right. Like throwing, yeah, you know, like throwing spitballs at these folks at the, in the front of the class. But like what else do you hope the audience gets out of this? I think that uh, to step back from the uh, people are just locked into, you know, I don't want to say teams, but this weird sort of American setup. And I don't think they are stepping back and looking at the way we are being played by these people. I mean, Americans are being played by these two groups. And especially you, George Bush is a great example because Trump came along. Now we're going to redo his image. And now he's this gentle, nice guy. No, he's not. He's a war criminal monster. Top yeah, to he bottom. He is a monster than Trump. I mean, that's the amazing thing watching this. If you step back and you forget who he is and what he's actually talking about, he's this likable fella sitting around talking about, hey, let me give you some folksy wisdom. You're like, I like him. And you're like, oh, right. He's a freaking war criminal you know, who's responsible for at least a million deaths. And I mean, it, and, and what has happened is because we've become even more entrenched in this team mentality, because he said some tepid criticisms of Trump, He's now embraced by Democrats and liberals and, you know, Michelle Obama hugging him and so forth. And and we're not just we're not just sitting there because we don't like him and we don't want you to like him. It's really, really, really important that people learn how to great friend of mine, uh, Harlan Ellison, said Americans yeah. don't know how to hold a grudge. 
And it's like, God damn it, you have to hold a grudge against these people because they will come back in. They're doing it. David Frum, isn't he over on MSNBC now? You get these architects of the Iraq war who are being embraced. You've got these clowns at the Lincoln Project who are making tons and tons of money that could be going to races where it's needed instead lining their own pockets because everyone believes that the old guard was good because Trump is so bad. That's dangerous. And we're here to remind you. I, I want to underscore that point you just said about it being dangerous. I think ultimately, as hilarious it is that George Bush has a master class, as absurd as it is, as absurd as that clip we just heard is, that it there is a deep danger in folks like that being able to kind of uh, memory hole what they yeah. did in the past and it's dangerous because it means it suggests we will not hold folks accountable in the present and future in other words there's no deterrent anymore to doing what they did uh, the audit the new podcast premiering on monday october 10th the trailer is available now you can find it on every major podcast player by searching the audit or just go to levernews.com slash podcasts uh dave and josh where can our listeners find you on twitter or anywhere else they can't find I don't dave know if you want to find me on twitter <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm protected but yeah. dave, dave's protected they can find me at, at joshua r olson um and they can also find every episode we did we sat through every single solitary episode of the west wing uh, except one, you'll figure it out. Uh, and that show is still up, The West Wing Thing. We had amazing guests, including David Sirota. We had people like Marianne Williamson, you name it. Um, and uh, that led to this. But uh, yeah, we're very excited to be doing this, excited to be uh, working with you guys. Um, I, I'm still, uh, I apologize, David. It's always going to be the lever to me. That's okay. We, we <laughs> If people want to call it the lever, they can. They want to call it the lever, that's fine. I'm thrilled that you guys are... Uh, part of our the first step in our podcast network expansion. Again, the podcast is going to be called The Audit. Find it, levernews.com slash podcast. Thanks for joining us here on Lever Time, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with my interview with author Douglas Rushkoff about billionaires preparing for the apocalypse. Welcome back to Lever Time. For our big interview today, I'm going to be speaking with author, documentarian, and media theorist Douglas Rushkoff. Douglas's new book is titled Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. It's the story of how the world's ultra wealthy are currently right now preparing to try to survive a potential world ending event like an ecological collapse, a global pandemic, nuclear war or the climate apocalypse. But as you may have guessed, none of the rest of us seem to be invited. Hey, Douglas, how you doing? Hey, great. Good to be with you. Your book, Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires, uh, I have a lot. I thought a lot about this. Uh, I was obviously involved in the movie Don't Look Up, uh, whose ending, for those who haven't seen it, uh, it deals with billionaires uh, leaving the planet uh, to try to survive an apocalypse. Uh, the title of the book obviously evokes the same image. The book is about this idea uh, about billionaires fleeing uh, and what they're doing to try to uh, insulate themselves from the crises they are creating. And it starts out with a real life meeting you had in the middle of the desert with a group of billionaires who are actually trying to do this. So let's start there. How did you find yourself in the desert 
with a bunch of billionaires talking about the apocalypse. I thought I was doing a talk, you know, one of these these kind of high price talks for wealthy tech investors that people like me support our writing habits <laughs> by going and doing. Um, so I, you know, I was flown out there and it was a whole thing and I'm sitting in the green room waiting to go on. And instead of micing me up and taking me out on a stage, these five men are escorted in, they sit around this table and start peppering me with all these questions about the future. You know, and it starts out, you know, simple, like Bitcoin or Ethereum, virtual reality, augmented reality, you know, where do they place their bets? And I disclosed to them, I would have told them Betamax and been wrong as opposed to, you know, VHS. I don't, that's not what I do. And then they got to um, uh, New Zealand or Alaska. You know, where do I put my bunker? And they started asking me then these questions about, about, you know, surviving the apocalypse. Like, what do they do with their bunker? And how do they, you know, uh, uh, you know, protect themselves from this threat or that? Because they believed that they this event was coming. They apparently they had people do the statistical analysis and they believed there was a 20 percent chance of the event occurring sometime before the end of their lives. And so they were taking 20 percent of their capital and investing it in surviving that event. And I honestly I thought I was being punked. I thought there was going to be a camera and this is like, oh, we're going to get this, you know, <laughs> reveal that this lefty media theorist is actually helping billionaires. And he thinks, um, but no, they, they believed it. And I tried to poke holes in it. I, I, I remember I said to them, well, they talked about how they had Navy SEALs flying out mm -hmm. to protect their bunkers. And I said, yeah, well, are these Navy SEALs going to continue to protect you once their money's worthless? And they like panicked. So these guys who think they're so friggin' brilliant. They like, they're like starting to jot down, uh-oh, figure out how to get Navy SEALs <laughs> to, to cooperate after our money's worthless. Uh, and, and the thing is, is that that's, to me, the, the problem with their formula, which is that they are wealthy billionaires until the door of the bunker closes. Right. And then the security or the people who know how to deal with the plumbing or the, the, the actual vital workers or the people with vital skills, they become uh, the value proposition. I mean, we, we, it's, and it's, it connects to actually what we're living through right now when it came to, for instance, the pandemic, grocery store workers, um, frontline medical folks, uh, now railroad workers, right? Mm. These are the people who actually make the things that make society uh, a society, that actually th are the people who, who do the things that we actually need. And the billionaires with so much wealth, uh, once that bunker door proverbially closes, they don't really add much value. Uh, so, Let's go down the the sort of dark path for a second here before we get to the the deeper meaning here. Mm. A lot of these billionaires, it sounds like, are thinking about how to impose control, how to maintain their power in the case of an event, an apocalypse, uh, in a, a bunker, maintaining control through, for instance, you mentioned uh, keeping the codes to a food vault memorized in their mind. Um, Talk a little bit about uh, how kind of uh, pointless that could end up being, but also about what kind of mindset that says that they are in, a mindset of social control. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, like you would think Machiavelli 101 should teach someone that, you know, you got to, 
if you're depending on your generals for your power, then your generals are in charge, not you. <laughs> right. It's not going to last very long. They don't, they don't seem to get that. So they were talking about, um, well, what if everyone on the compound had to have an implant and then we could use the implant sort of as a shock collar so that, you know, as a, as an advanced form of shock so that it would, it would ensure compliance or we could have robot guards that protect us from the regular I mean, I mean it's guards. like straight out of the old movie, uh, the old eighties uh, sci-fi movie fortress where they had right. something called the intestinator where you were in the, in the prison and they put something in your intestines. And if you got out of line, they would like click a button and it would like inflict massive pain in your intestines. And if you went really out of line, it would blow you up. I mean, this, this stuff is straight out of sci-fi. Right. And that's because these dudes are straight out of sci-fi. I mean, that's, <laughs> you know, when you really want to go dark, they are using, you know, Walking Dead and Westworld instead of a basic college education to inform themselves about how society works. I would ask that then a follow-up. What do you think is wrong with their view of how society works? I guess what I'm getting at is, do you think it's wrong for them to look out at society right now and say, listen, if, if, if shit really hits the fan and I want to create safety for myself, I'm going to be, I need to be most afraid of the worst human instincts. Like I need to, I need to basically presume that the world is going to become Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Mm. Is, is that wrong in your view? I mean, I think it's wrong, but I mean, I know where it's funny. I haven't talked about this at all, but where it really comes from that view of humans is a uh, kind of Walter Lippmann and Edward Bernays, the guys who started public relations, you know, they were looking at uh, the bewildered herd, right? The 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 mob, as Gustav, you know, Lebon called it, the the mob of people, the crowd, mm -hmm. um, and that they they kind of looked at a, a, a distorted or maybe not so distorted view of Freud, who said that there's another person inside each of us who's this kind of wild, savage thing that, that you know, left to its own devices is going to just try to get whatever it wants and kill. And and if you if if that part of the person isn't appealed to either with consumerism or something, um, then they're going to go Nazi. And I feel like these guys maybe didn't think that way because they're so into these ideas of self-sovereignty and Ayn Rand and autonomy and all. Then Trump became president and January 6th and things like that happened. And that's when they started to say, oh, you know, humanity. I mean, they always thought this, but now they had their proof that humanity is a problem and we solve for that problem with technology. That's the way they've really looked at it. And that's always been my pet peeve, you know, as an early cyberpunk internet enthusiast kind of guy. And here's the net's going to come and unleash the possibilities of the collective human imagination. Then along came Wired Magazine and a bunch of, you know, capitalists who are betting on the digital future. And they turned the apparatus around. So instead of people using technology to realize their dreams, we use technology on people in order to control their behavior. All of, you know, behavioral finance in Las Vegas was ported over to technology platforms in order to control people. So they spend their days thinking, how do I control people with tech? You know, of course, when they ponder the, the apocalypse, they think about it in terms of how do I control people? In that situation. Now, what's the al alternative to this? And what I mean by that is huh. if you were a billionaire uh, and you're looking out at the world, uh, climate change, pandemics, uh, social unrest, uh, the unraveling of democracy, 
and, and you open that sort of portal in your mind. And I, and I really do think it's kind of a, it's kind of a dark descent. Once you uh, start arming yourself, once you start a, creating a, you know, back in the fifties and sixties, a nuclear bunker, where does it ever end? But let's just say you had that, the mindset, you with having written this book, you get billions and billions of dollars. What's the alternative way of looking at how to either survive an apocalypse or how to make your, make yourself, your family safe in a quote unquote event? That's interesting. Uh, once you have billions of dollars, you've already succumbed to the illness. You know, it's like, you know what I mean? You, if you have billions of dollars, as I see it, you have a form of economic obesity, right? You've, you've extracted way too much. That's why Mark Zuckerberg talks about, oh, I'm going to give back 99% of my money. It's like, dude, you took too much to begin with. You can't just shove it back in the economy where you want to. But, you know, what I told these guys when they were, you know, pondering my question about uh, how to maintain control of their security force after the apocalypse, I said, well, why don't you start treating them really nice now? And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, get your, your head of security and pay for it. I was being mean, but uh, I said, Can you take your head of security and pay for his daughter's bat mitzvah today. And he'll have a hard time shooting you between the eyes in the bunker tomorrow because he'll look at your face and think, ah, that guy paid for little Muriel's bat mitzvah. How can I do it? But I was trying to get them to see, oh, maybe there's an easier way. Maybe if I don't make enemies of the entirety of humanity, you know, I, I, I won't have to protect myself from them. And maybe, you know, if I could, I could take a different approach to business because their their idea is to outrun the damage they're creating. You know, they they think that they can somehow earn enough money or make a te make enough technology to insulate themselves from the reality they're creating by earning money and building technology in that way. Like they can drive a car that goes fast enough to escape from its own exhaust. And it just doesn't work. And they keep making this devil's bargain. I, I keep thinking about, I just read a piece about Epson printers and how there's this printer they make that's pre-programmed to brick itself after a certain number of thousand pages. Talk about no, planned obsolescence, right? Right. It just bricks itself. And there's no real reason to do it, right? They claim there's a sponge that might get overused. You can't replace a three-cent sponge. You got to... So the person who does that knows there's climate change. They're not stupid. They know now we got to send more slave kids into, into mines to get the rare earth metals to make more printers. We're going to have to take this used printer and dump it on another toxic waste dump in Brazil where other children are going to pick at it for renewable parts. But... I'm going to earn enough more marginal money on the sale of this extra printer to somehow escape or insulate. I'm going to outrun the devastation I'm causing. And it just doesn't work. And that's, that's I think, the, the calculation they can't make anymore. This kind of insulation equation they've been making um, to use exponential growth to outrun the devastation in their own wake isn't really working. Their own homes are getting singed by forest fires. Their kids are getting addicted to social media, no matter how many, yeah, how much they try to keep their kids from using the technologies they themselves make. It's, it's coming back. The, the cycles of feedback, you know, that's the whole thing that Norbert Wiener originally told us about digital technology. It's cybernetic. It comes back. It's circular. It's like instant karma. And now they're like, 
oh shoot, what am I going to do? When I think about this, and I'm I'm sort of addicted to dystopian sci-fi. I mean, that's like a like a personal admission here. Like I, I just consume so much of it. And but I, you know how to make it. But but you make it. The the, the where you transcend it though is. You make it funny. You l allow us to see our obsession as small. We can laugh. And when we laugh, we go, oh, my God, I'm trying to escape from this. I've got to turn around and make friends with my neighbors. I'm going to have to sit around that table. I don't want to give away the end of your movie, but sit around. I mean, my God, I was weeping and laughing at the same time at the end of that movie because it's like that's my whole. I wrote a book before this called Team Human, just saying just look in someone else's eyes. Just be with someone else and you'll see. Oh, my God, I've been I've been going in entirely the wrong direction my whole life. Totally. And I think, though, it is a, as I said, it's a slippery slope and, and a descent into a kind of abyss. If, if you start creating a bunker mentality, what you're, I kind of get to the point where I'm like, listen, okay, let's say uh, the event happens. You know, I, I haven't stockpiled weapons in my crawl space. I haven't stockpiled, you know, large quantities of food. I haven't built myself a bunker. I sort of think, listen, the event, if you will, is on the, is, is sort of all bets are off at that point. Like you have so many bigger problems than than having you know a, a gun in your basement to defend yourself, having a having a you know extra water around, like like it's kind of a. I mean, I, I maybe I'm, I sound naive here, but it's it's kind of like once that happens, so many bets are off that it's actually almost impossible for an individual to plan a contingency plan for that. Right. That what you end up at is the idea back to the most ancient idea possible that we're all in this together that we, we, we are a, a tribal species that that we really can't as a civilization survive without us all kind of working together i mean you can call that any ism you want you can call it socialism you can call it communitarianism whatever you want to call it but i think ultimately that's what we're really talking about here that the billionaires that you profile in this book have a view that they can somehow get beyond that basic uh, reality of human life on the planet that has sustained human life on the planet and that you end uh, uh, that's their vision and what's countering their vision is what has allowed humans to survive for millennia which is a much different vision of we're all in this together i mean is that basically where you come down yeah uh, and 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 then some so, yes, these guys have taken Stuart Brand at his word when he told the early computer counterculture, you know, we are as gods and may as well get good at it. They all want to sort of operate one level above the rest of us. Peter Thiel says, go from zero to one and have your business be one order of magnitude above the others. You know, Mark Zuckerberg, when Facebook stops working, he goes meta, one level above everybody else. The whole digital realm is a symbol system above uh, Jeffrey Epstein, who wants to live as a god above his, you know, enslaved women, uh, uh, billionaires who use derivatives and derivatives of derivatives. They're not in the market. They're financialized. Again, one abstract level above the real, the real marketplace. So yeah, and it even gets to their understanding of themselves as a self- sovereign individual. I mean, what does even that construction mean? You're self-sovereign means you're like king of yourself. You don't just objectify everyone else, you objectify you and go one level above. And of course they look at the end that way, but they look at the now that way too, which is why 
those ends are happening. But you take a tech bro and send him to Burning Man and give him some ayahuasca or down to South America. And then they come back like, oh, my gosh, the earth spoke to me. We're all one. And I've got to create the new global community. And the way we do that is control, alt, delete. We we reboot this thing. They become accelerationists like Steve Bannon. We just got to pedal to the metal, let this civilization die so we can clear cut a forest and build something. It's like there's a, a zillion dollar nation that they're trying to build in Saudi Arabia called Neom, which is this super zillion dollar high tech solar powered blah, 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 blah. And you got to, they're building it all the way across the desert. The one problem, there are these Bedouins who've been living there for God knows how many thousand years that they got to get them off. So it's like, wait a minute, in order to create our new, you know, humanity 2.0 sustainable eco thing, we've got to get rid of the people who've actually been doing it in community successfully since before our civilization began. And underscoring the word in communities, right? Surviving in the right. desert in a community. They okay. don't have community though. They can't even relate to other people. I mean, it's, I, I've got studies in the book I refer to that show that when people become billionaires, their frontal lobes, they operate as if they've been in a, in a brain trauma. They lose the ability to have empathy. You show a billionaire a picture of like a starving baby and the part of their brain that's supposed to light up, it doesn't even light up. So it's as if they've, they've, they've damaged themselves by earning that much money. Now in your book, you met with a guy named J.C. Cole, who is the former president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Latvia. Cole is doing something somewhat similar to these other billionaires, but with a little bit more of a different approach. Talk a little bit about what J.C. Cole is doing, how his plan uh, differs, uh, and whether it offers some, uh, I guess, constructive lessons uh, in contrast to the other billionaires you profile. I mean, the great thing about J.C. Cole, this guy emailed me after my first piece about the billionaires went up and he's like, oh, you got to talk. I, I got to talk to you. I've got I've got the answer for these billionaires. And I meet this guy and he's like a total MAGA, you know, anti Hillary. He can't even say the word Hillary. He says he goes her. She, you know, he's like a full on MAGA with the hat and the whole thing. And he had guns. He let me shoot in his in his field. But it's like that, you know, that horseshoe thing they talk about. I guess me as an anarcho syndicalist, radical, whatever I find, I find something in common across the gap of the horseshoe with this MAGA guy. So he's got he wants to build these eco farms, these sustainable farms using old tech, you know, seeds, chickens, roosters, all the stuff that apparently modern farms don't have. Modern farms, they buy pre-sprouted things and plant them in the ground. And they don't have roosters. They just have chickens that lay the eggs. And if they need more chickens, they buy the eggs from somewhere else. So he's like, this is not how you really do it. You've got to have biodiesel and all this stuff. And then he told me about how he's got, you know, the Navy SEALs pre-hired to come in and protect these things. So the idea is a billionaire or multimillionaire pays like $10 million now, and they have a guaranteed place at one of these farms situated an hour or two from major cities. So there's one near Princeton, one in the Poconos, one somewhere else. And I said, well, what do you do about the, you know, a motorcycle gang with machine guns? You know, I'm thinking Walking Dead that come to the perimeter of the farm. I want to take all your stuff. And he said, you know, frankly, I'm less concerned about the, the, motorcycle gang than I am about the woman standing at the end of the driveway with a baby and no food. 
I don't want to be in that moral quandary. So what he did, what his business plan includes is when you invest the $10 million, you're investing, yes, to get a place in the farm, but you're also investing in an education company that he's starting that's going to teach different communities how to start their own sustainable eco farms. Because in his understanding of security, and this is as security, the fewer people there are running around in motorcycle gangs, the more people there are in their own eco farms, the less his people are going to have to worry about. But as a result, none of these tech bros are investing in his farm. They're looking at him as like a commie pinko lefty, you know, <laughs> communitarian rather than having the necessary resolve to protect them from everybody else. Okay, let me just play devil's advocate here. What is wrong with a billionaire using his or her money uh, to try to secure themselves and their family uh, in advance of an apocalypse. Like what, what is fundamentally wrong with that? And, and what would, I guess, what would you do in, there, in that situation? I mean, in one sense, there's nothing wrong with them spending their money any way they want. Um, the problem is more, I think, operating a business under the presumption that the world is going to end. So when you think it's going to go and all you have to do is earn enough money and gather enough technology to protect yourself from the apocalypse, then you are more likely to take a rather scorched earth policy in your in your business transactions. You're going to be more likely to be the guy who makes printers that brick themselves um, and and accelerate the uh, the disaster for everybody else. You know, the, the the operative word in the subtitle of this book is escape fantasies of the tech billionaires. You know, for a while I had it escape plans of the tech billionaires. And then I realized the problem with that is people are going to think I'm taking these plans seriously. They can't, it doesn't work. What's wrong. The ultimate reason why it's wrong for them to be spending all this money building bunkers. It is futile, right? <laughs> it's just futile. They're fooling themselves and then they operate differently. They run their businesses differently. They speak publicly differently and it engenders a mindset in them that all of their customers, that all of us, that everybody else in the world except them and their own families and security guards are the enemy, are the ones to leave behind rather than the, the potential friends and communities to join. So I want to end this conversation by tying it back to where we are now in politics. Mm. One of the takeaways I have from your book, one of the undercurrents of it, I think, uh, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, is that I think some of this, my guess is that psychologically it's tied to the end of the social contract. And by that, I mean, we are living in an age in which many of the things that would be considered the social contract feel like they have been demonized and have broken down. By that, I mean, uh, we there's been an anti-government ideology that is put out there that the government is evil and not just the government, anything sort of in the public sector, the public space is evil or inept, uh, cannot be relied upon uh, to deliver public benefits. Uh, it, it gets uh, raided by corruption and cronyism, uh, that it, it does not uh, materially improve the lives of regular people. And so I guess my question is, I wonder how much of this I have to flee. How much of this I have to build my own bunker? How much of this I can just, I need to just be able to go it alone ties back to 
a broader feeling, whether fair or unfair, that the, that the community, the, the public sector, the public space, uh, cannot or will not uh, protect uh, the civilization, the society, cannot protect uh, your family uh, from all of the things that are happening. And in many cases, uh, the, the public space is on the, on the side of the people uh, and the industries that are creating the problems. So how much of it yeah. ties back to the sort of this lack of faith in the social contract? Well, I mean, there's always been a tension between, you know, uh, corporate America and, you know, the strident individual of individualism of of Bernays and the National Association of Marketers. You, you're the one you deserve a break today. Um, and the more kind of Roosevelt style, good government, we're going to protect people, you know, and it's like the World's Fair. Most people don't know the World's Fair was corporate America saying we are going to protect your future, not government. It's corporations that will make America good. You know, what's good for GM is good for the USA. And that tension has always been there and it kind of went a little further during Reagan and Thatcher and a little bit less maybe, you know, during Carter or Clinton or someone. But it's always been back and forth. And somehow I think digital technology has has exacerbated this tension or or has pushed things further on the side of the individual, both because the companies themselves are dependent on highly individualized exit strategies for the winners, you know, hockey stick growth. I'm going to get out of this thing with all this money and leave a scorched earth. I don't care what in my wake, even the investors holding the bag since AOL. It's like where I'm going to get out with my winnings and leave them behind. But also the the technological ethos itself you know, it's an iPhone, not a Wii phone, an iPad, not an us pad. You know, these are devices that really do promote our individuality because, and this is what Timothy Leary told me back in the 80s, that the kids, the guys at the media lab, the technologists developing these things have this vision of somehow building a technological womb around themselves. He he thought that they were still upset that their mothers were unable to anticipate their every need and bring them, you know, what they needed, a diaper or or milk or whatever they wanted. And now they want to kind of recreate the womb with technology and have everything brought to them and have have algorithms anticipate and not make them have to worry about women and nature and moisture and dirt and all the stuff that empirical science was really that it promised us would be put under control by technology and science. So they're really in ascendance and we are living with the devices and on the platforms that these very fearful, highly individualistic children develop. They are plucked from college as freshmen right before they've taken history, ethics, economics, and then they transfer parental authority onto a Peter Thiel and then build a platform that we all use without realizing what it's actually what it's actually doing to us. So uh, I, I agree um, that somehow a, a strident capitalist economics and a stridently individualistic technology have dovetailed and created this this culture that we're living in, but all of us, I think, are slowly realizing, gosh, it was more fun when there was one barbecue pit on the end of the block 
in my middle class neighborhood than it is having my own barbecue in my wealthy neighborhood. How do I get back to that? Um, and if our value system changes to that and emulating that experience rather than emulating Jeff Bezos in the ultimate version of white flight in his Blue Origin spaceship or his yacht with a service yacht, um, we may be able to restore this thing yet. The book is a terrific book. I encourage everybody to read it. It's called Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaire, Douglas Rushkoff. He's a professor of media theory and digital economics at the City University of New York. He also has a podcast called Team Human. You can find his work at rushkoff.com. Douglas Rushkoff, thanks so much for your time today. Uh, thanks for having me and finding me. That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Levertime Premium get to hear our bonus segment, the best moments from our live show with Stephen Donziger, the man who has been called Chevron's prisoner. Stephen and I discussed how the fossil fuel industry uses its legal power to go on the attack, fighting activists, local communities, and even lawyers like himself. We also took some questions from the audience. A good portion of what they did to me and concluded it violated multiple provisions of international law. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist or illegal expert to look at this and know that it was a complete abuse of the law. But this is what they do. You know, there's the law as it's supposed to work, and then there's the judiciary and the law as it actually works. And a lot of people are more focused on the former than the latter, and it's understandable. But there's a way it works, a way it's abused by corporations to try to go after people like me, um, and that's what happened in this instance. And please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Levertime on your favorite podcast app. One last favor to ask. If you like this podcast and our reporting, please tell your friends and family about The Lever and the work we're doing here. Forward our emails to them. Encourage them to subscribe. The only way independent media grows is by word of mouth. So we need all the help we can get to continue doing the work that we're doing. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Keep rocking the boat.